This season of the Arts Explanatory Comma Podcast is brought to you in part by the City of Houston and Houston Arts Alliance. Houston Arts Alliance is a local arts and culture organization whose principal work is to implement the City of Houston's vision, values, and goals for its art grant making and civic art investments. HAA's work is conducted through contracts with the City of Houston, overseen by the Mayor's Office of Cultural Affairs. HAA also executes privately funded special projects to meet the needs of the arts community, such as disaster preparation, research on the state of the arts in Houston, and temporary public art projects that energize neighborhoods. In short, HAA helps artists and arts nonprofits be bold, productive, and strong. We want to say thank you to Houston Arts Alliance and the City of Houston for your support of our little podcast. Now, let's get to it. Hey, just quick heads up. This podcast may contain some adult language and adult themes. So if you got kids around, tell them earmuffs. If you at work, put your headphones on. Just make sure you're not about to get in trouble for listening to this. Also, remember that it is all in artistic context. We're not just out here talking crazy for no reason. All the time, anyway. Um, but stay tuned. Today, we are happy to be here with artist extraordinaire amongst other things like graphic designer, photographer. He just does all kind of visual things. Filmmaker. Um, am I missing anything? Graphic. Award representative. Hard. Hard. The most amazing third ward representative you've ever met or not met. Say, you should meet him. So many things I could say about that. But no, we are here with the wonderful Mark Fury. Hey, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mark, since you've already established that you don't listen to our podcast, I'm going to ask you the question that you've never heard, and it's going to sound amazing. Okay. When did you first fall in love with art, Mark? It's like. <clears throat> my compulsive behavior of doing art stuff started at an early age, I guess like around four when I could, um, that's when for some reason I could start drawing in three-dimensional, just out of the blue. I just had the concept I could do something in 3D. And so, you know, that was that. And fast forward to, um, oh, yeah, my grandma used to put me in art class. After she saw I could draw, she yeah. put me in art class. So that kind of um, <clears throat> gave me this whole thing I like art. Um, but none of the schools I went to had any valid type of art class or anything. Yeah. I think Willow Ridge had a little one in one time and I don't even remember what I did in there. Um, but after that I wasn't, you know, everything art related, I was just doing my own because yeah. the college I went to didn't have an art class, both colleges. Well, take that back. I went to Morehouse for two years, ran out of money, then uh, finished at TSU and TSU actually had an art, whole art department. So yeah. I kind of picked up a paintbrush for a little bit there. Um, but really, I didn't. Um, what got me finally into, I guess, a creative career was um, I joined the TSU debate team, and uh, Dr. Freeman, who just turned 100 years old, he's like the founder of the debate team. It was, it was has been there since TSU was founded. 
but still Crazy. there, still going on trips with the debaters. Um, he found out that uh, I could draw, and Dr. Freeman was one of those cats, like, he finds you have a talent, he's going to, like, exploit that. <laughs> so he's like, Mark, I need to talk to you. You know, that's how he talks. He talks, like, real, like, you know, he has his own style. Yeah. So I would like, I understand you're a great artist. Here's what I need you to do. Not even, like, waiting for me to say, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. What you need? Like, no. So he'd ask me to do flyers for him, which I, I would just start, you know, I'd hand draw everything. Yeah. You know, uh, it would be like personal stuff, like the church he's a pastor at, you know. So one day, <laughs> one day he asked me to do something and it had a lot of text to it. And I was like, I can't hand do all this text. So I found out we had a computer lab with old school Mac computers and software on it where you draw this or that. Yeah. So that's how I learned. I just kind of threw myself in that. And I taught myself how to... Um, Make flyers, yeah, and that was the intro. And then what really kind of took me over the edge was um, there was like this bar downtown. This is like way back in the day before downtown even had anything to do. And um, this is bar um, on Prairie Street. It was called Solstice. It was like some cats decided to put their money together. Some lawyer cats put their money yeah. together and they made this kind of like bar. You know, had you know DJ. That's where I met DJ Sun, um, and it was like they needed a logo. Yeah. So actually, I met DJ Sun first. Um, if anybody knows DJ, if anybody out there is listening, DJ Sun is the uh, he's kind of one of the I guess forefathers of doing cool radio shows with you know acid jazz music and all the soul music that was coming out of Europe and yep. stuff. So <clears throat> this is before he was a DJ too, which is kind of interesting. Oh, that's crazy. And um, I knew his his then his wife. And uh, through TSU, because she was a TSU student, and like the job I had after TSU, he came by. She told him about me. Um, Andre came by. DJ Sun came by my job. And we had a conversation about you know what I could do. Um, he said, "Hey, can you think you can do a logo?" I was like, "Yeah, sure." He said, like, "You know, it pays like you know two hundred fifty bucks." I was like, "Wow, that's so much money! <laughs> I'd be happy to do that." You know, and. Um, so the next day, I uh, I went to the computer lab and I made this cool logo. I made a trumpet out of the the L, and it it, it was like a combination of a trumpet and a, and a cocktail with bubbles, you know, yeah, like a martini glass. And um, they loved it. They paid me the money. And um, actually, the other cat that was um, trying to trying to uh, get the logo gig was um, um, legendary artist Israel McLeod. So it was kind of interesting. Oh, wow. Like I was just so hyped that. Man, I'd be the legendary artist. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so that became my um, my route into graphic design. You can stop me if I need to jump into. No, you okay, good. Cool. You good. We like we 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 are all about tangential conversations. Yeah. Um, we start them most of the time. Or I do. So yeah. whatever, it's all good. <laughs> so back and forth um, in time a little bit at TSU or even even back when I was at Morehouse I made t-shirts I mean, did t-shirt designs and it's right. or whatever and back then it was like pro-black stuff gotta hustle um, when pro-blackness was in back then and then it went out of style because then it became gangster rap and all that type of aesthetic now it's coming but, back yeah then it went full circle <laughs> which is kind of weird when like Black Panther was really popping and yeah. afro-punk and all that and I'm like this is such a throwback cause like <laughs> Ten years or five, five or ten years before that, if you put any type of pro-black stuff, nobody would care. Yeah. You know, black people wouldn't care. 
And these kids are dressing like it's corny, you know. They dressing like the grunge, the grunge white kids used to dress, which is funny to me. Yeah, everything is it's so a weird. Repeat. Like if you all know, you start seeing everything is such a repeat that I just I quit taking trends seriously, but I could also predict trends. You know, like yeah. what's the next thing is gonna pop? It's actually that's actually the interesting thing to me now. Like if you if kids are like, yeah, I'm all about that '90s aesthetic. If you pay attention, like it's mostly white '90s aesthetic. They're not dressing like black kids in the nineties. They look like Blossom and Joey Russo. You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> you know, they also like like cross goes and what TLC was wearing too, huh? I haven't seen a whole lot of kids oh, okay. in that. I've seen a lot of kids in flannels. Okay. High waisted jeans, baby doll t shirts with the little ruffle at the bottom, and the cap okay. sleeve, like big platform. Yo, I'm telling you, like, I see that all the time. Every once in a while, I see like some kid in like some throwback, like Air Forces or something like that, mm-hmm. like some Patrick Ewins or some shit. But for the most part, they be in these Adidas Oswegos or some expensive Adidas that they sold back in the day for seventy five dollars. Now they selling them for two hundred. Yeah, like, that's a whole nother thing. Millennials are a special breed. We'll get back to that. Yeah, we'll, we'll get so. back to that. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, you're a millennial. No, I'm not. You are. <laughs> she keeps trying to tell me I'm a millennial. He's an older millennial. He's, He's an old older millennial, millennial but yeah. a millennial. Until technically a not a millennial, because y'all got problems. Okay. Y'all got issues. All right. We're just angry. So, um, so, but anyway. Yeah, so the 90s was an interesting time period in Houston. Um, because I guess like what I was into versus what everybody else was into were kind of yeah. like different. You know, so I just, you know, I'm always going to be me. But I was, it's kind of interesting because a lot of stuff that I was into in the 90s is stuff that nobody was in, into back then, but ne- but millennials are into. Yeah. Like, I was a black dude. I like, you know, anime and stuff like that. And I like rock music and like, you know, electronic music. Yeah. But I'd be, you know, me and a few other people and that would be the thing. And then I have to just end up being around you know, whatever other ethnic groups like. Yeah. That sort of thing. So my space was always like, I guess a different zone. Ironically, I had a, um, so it was two phases of my life. Like I met some cats that were still at TSU and we kind of like just got together and made a t-shirt. Um, we had a t-shirt car where we sold like our own branded t-shirts at Sharpstown Mall. So my stuff was would be considered cool and hip now. But they would sell <laughs> stuff that was more like, I guess, ghettoized. You know, everything was like, because they, they they basically were smarter than me as far as I wanted to do what was great to me. Yeah. But they would do, they would cater to the crowd that would come through Sharpstown Mall. Yeah. So they were getting all the money. So <laughs> I kind of learned from that experience. Like my shirts that I'm doing now, like I rock them now. People are like, yo, where you get that shirt? So I was like 20 years ahead of the you know everybody yeah. else it just wouldn't pop in yeah when I did it um so the same dudes um they kind of evolved into we started doing a a print a print and we flyer printing company um we did club flyers and CD covers you know for like independent record labels and um like. So that was kind of an interesting time period because all kind of interesting people would come through the office. Like independent record labels were like, you know, a lot of times they were drug dealers, you know. So we see we see all the cats 
you know, and all those type of personality and club owners. Yeah. You know, that's an interesting, you have to have a very interesting, a special personality run a nightclub. Yeah, you do. Or be a party promoter. It's like all these kind of, you know, a lot of craziness, a lot of, you know, just over the top weird people coming through. The office. <laughs> um, so is it safe to say that your, your passion for art and your hustle have always gone hand in hand? Yeah, that's a very good statement. Thank you, man. <laughs> you see, you see me. we have bonded on this podcast. <laughs> well, so what was your? I, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was gonna say. So, at what point in your journey did you consider yourself a professional artist? Um, I kind of always did, but not in the fine arts sector. It was kind of like okay. I was more like a hustle artist, you know, like graphic yeah. design. You know, I, I worked for um, Houston Business Journal for a while, and I did. Um, you know, lay out, laid out the whole magazine. Yeah. You know, mostly self-taught, most stuff. I mean, I took some classes at HCC, Photoshop, and Illustrator, um, and what was called Cork Design, which is now InDesign, now equivalent um, on the Adobe Creative Suite. And um, that was, I just took one class of each, and then just yeah. kind of like started getting gigs. And yeah. back then, that was, you know, a lot of people were knowledgeable about doing graphic yeah. design. Fun fact, me and Mark won a travel award together for a magazine that he did the layout for, for Almeida Travel. You don't remember that? I remember he got an award. He got an award. Yeah. Rain, tell me either. They tell me either. Rain, tell me that shit either. But, yeah. Yeah, I never do that. I got the award. I just, like, I got my money. Uh-huh. And they- you, did the, you did the layout. I did all the content, and uh-huh. it won an award, and Ray ain't say shit. Yeah, that way I went through that on the, on the thing. Bragging rights. I mean, damn. You know what, won. man? We need to call my speaker phone and cuss him out right now. <laughs> right here on the podcast. Are you at your mind? Do you know who I am? And you ain't like, do you know who this dude is? But anyway, like, um, <laughs> so to fast forward to like, you know, coast through time, like um, I had a lot of iterations of, of just doing my own thing. It was always my own thing yeah. because there wasn't really a big infrastructure for that sort of thing yeah um so that's kind of always been my driving force of diy you know everything like we did rave flyers um printed rave flyers so yeah. i need to know the rave kids and um everything about what they did was diy i had a magazine um we did a like a magazine called fluid magazine um where we talked about hip culture in houston and we did two issues, and it just... And this was in the 90s? This was all in the 90s. Wow. We did... Oh, one of the things we did was like this thing. It was like a, what would be called a blog now. It's called Urban 247. Yeah. Like, um, we had to figure out coding and how to send people out email blasts and stuff like that. And there wasn't any infrastructure for that. There wasn't any, like, you know, MailChimp. Mail there yeah. wasn't none of that stuff existed. These kids don't know that's when the internet came on CDs. Yeah. <laughs> like, really? I remember that. <laughs> Barely. <laughs> This is the internet before, um, this is like the the 1.0. Yeah. You know, the websites were really interesting. With um, no high speed. It was, no high speed. It, it was, was just internet. Like, you <laughs> that little noise. <laughs> yep. That's. So we were doing all this stuff in Houston. I even made an email that, could, that had animation and it could talk. And I did that with um, some animation program. And that was when Flash was big. You know, we yeah. could do animation and, and any type of audio. Yeah. And we compress it so it could be streamed. This is before YouTube and all that sort of thing. And what's funny was, and I'll show you how lame Houston was at the time. 
like because we had a big following urban 247 we it was like a blog and we had like these um these parties like yeah. these happy hour parties for people you know because everything was like you know catered to people that go to um you know athlete parties and you know cabin beach party Basically, like that was Capital our mainstream beach wow. party. Just hood shit, you know. Like everything was hood or flashy. It's Texas's version any, of the freak Nick. Exactly. Yeah. There wasn't any middle ground. It was like hood or flashy, hood or flashy. Yeah. Um. So or bougie, you know, like yeah. they canoodle among themselves. So there wasn't like the person <laughs> that's just kind of like in the middle, which was always me, you know. Yeah. And um. So we made these heavy hours for people that were in the middle, you know, like people that you know. I went to college, you know. I like cool stuff. Um, and they were a hit. You know, they were big parties. Yeah. You know, people. We had great DJs. DJ um, Def Jam Blaster would DJ a lot of our stuff. And um, Def Jam Blaster. <laughs> so due to egos and just like the infrastructure wasn't there, you know, sometimes you know competitors started charging stuff pennies on the dollar, yeah. and competing with us, which is atrocious. Like a lot of people would just say, "Hey, some young black guys like me." Instead of saying, hey, let me help what they're doing, it's kind of like, well, I can figure out what they're doing and I can charge a cheaper price. Yeah. And I could outdo them. And that's what would happen. Like, you know, they didn't outdo us, but they just created a market where everything was cheap. And had we done the same thing in a New York or LA situation, we would have been retired millionaires or something. Somebody yeah. would throw investor capital at us and, like, would happen with everybody else that did that. Yeah. So Houston was a weird bubble to me in the 90s and the early 2000s. And I just, I'm happy that everything kind of evolved a bit. Yeah. You know, because of the internet and that sort of thing. Yeah. And actually millennials, like millennials because they grew up with the internet from, I guess, adolescence to adulthood with the internet. I guess that's the distinguishing thing about, like for us it was um, adolescence to adulthood listening to hip hop. Yeah. So that was definitely, that was our culture. Um, That's why our music's better. Yeah, and then we had access to the past. You know, we were into the past, like you know the, the samples and stuff. So yeah. the actual the music that it came from. Um, they be sampling video game sounds. That's actually cool if you do it right. Yeah, yeah but they usually right. don't though. Yeah, there's a lack of soul. <laughs> I will, I will, I will admit there's a lack in a lot of music of today. There's a lack of um, the spirit or the soul into it. You know, it's like all like surface. I don't necessarily. I'm not saying it's all. But Do you think that it might be related to the arts funds being cut across public education? I've no, seen. no, because I didn't have no. I didn't have a lot of art class stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe so. I was a different type of person. So the average person really didn't like in Houston. Didn't really, you know, they weren't exposed to the art. Like in New yeah. York, you could go to a hood school and still be exposed to museums, yeah. the field trips. You know, go like top quality art. You know. Mm-hmm. So there's that. And then there's all the culture, people bringing their music from wherever they're from, like yeah. Caribbean or whatever, and it'll be a big deal. So there's that. So Houston was kind of like um, normalcy. You know, you didn't really care about anything outside of what you're used to. Yeah. You know, like, um, you know, happy hours, or, you know, the game, you know, and yeah. strip clubs and, and church. And frats and sororities. That was that was Houston, you know, yeah. and, and good food. Always good food. And you're in a bubble, so there wasn't like a lot of, you know, cool ideas. It was kind of like, and you know, I'm just trying to. Yeah. Well, but I mean, well, we did have like the shit that we had that really bubbled though. Like it took it took some time for it to catch on other places. You're talking about screw music and that whole I'm, vibe, or um, 
Which interestingly yeah. enough, I didn't like any of that when it was when it was first out. Like now, I love it. I think a lot of people, a lot of people, had weird feelings about it. Because as a good Southwest, so by default, Southsider, mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't really listen to Screw until, and I hate to say it, I hate to say it. Until I listened to Before the Capital 2002, Swisher House. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hey, man, I'm not going to lie. Michael 5000 Watts did make that beat go chop chop. Yeah, she was crazy. Yeah, but then I went back. I went back What's after that. Is, I was like, yo, that's although crazy. I'm much younger than you. That was also my primary introduction. My uncle had that. But you was like know. four. I wasn't four, but yes, I was five. Too, too young to be listening. To <laughs> but I was not four or five. Well, let me ask you this, though, Mark. What was the catalyst that made you, like, take your or feel as though, like, okay, I'm a fine artist? Well, or has that happened? Before we do that, because you made the distinction earlier, what do you consider the difference between the art that you were creating and then the transition into fine art? Um, That's a good question. I'm not high-fiving you. And I went for it. (laughs) So there's a couple of things that made me, you know, jump over, jump the line. It was actually a conversation I had with Rick Lowe, the the founder of Project Grow Houses, um, when he was still there. He was like, hey, Mark, come here. Let's have a conversation. (laughs) So, like, um, I can't remember all the proper wording that took place because I was kind of in awe of the conversation. But the the takeaway that I got was, um, you know, do you and go for it, you know, like, you yeah. know, you should, you should, you know, you know, take what's in your heart and just do it, you know, like, just don't let anybody tell you, you know, like walk up to all these people that say what you're doing is not that big a deal. Yeah. And don't, don't accept no from them. Or don't accept like them looking down on you. Yeah. Cause you went this route and now you want to do this route, other route. Like don't let other people tell you that, you know, your stuff isn't valid. Yeah, and it stuck with me. So like maybe a year and a half later, the whole maybe it was less than a year later, the opportunity of you know being part of the project Row around forty seven came about, and really, because um, I'm have to jump around and tell you the whole story of like my evolution. So I'm gonna try to be brief about the past and just focus <laughs> on the present because I could be talking. Um, I did a short film in two thousand eight. It was part of an HBO contest. Um, uh, I was I was in that film. Yeah, we're gonna get to that. Three hundred thousand dollars. You remember the line too. <laughs> so it was like um, it was like a, it was like a contest where it was funded by it was sponsored by Chase Bank. So okay. we yeah. had to write a story about something that has to do with uh, home ownership. So my thing was like I had lived in Third Ward. Well, I've been in Third Ward off and on throughout my life, but I had a house by that time, living as an adult, growing up with a house, um, where I was seeing the changes in the neighborhood. Like, I moved on this block that I'm at because we're actually broadcasting live from the home of Mark Fury. And like, um, (laughs) so I was seeing the changes in the neighborhood. Like, when I first moved on this block, it was like all old black people. And I kind of wanted to, um, like, I've had, you know, a corporate job or, Corporate situation where I had a white boss and that sort of thing, and the weirdness that comes with the microaggression of working in an organized atmosphere with most white people. I just wanted to escape that. Yeah. You know, so I worked um, 
I got a gig at TSU where I did graphic design for the whole school. And I lived in this house, and it was all old black people. So interestingly enough, over time, I ended up with a white boss, white male boss at TSU, and he had a white woman boss over him. So then it became like that type of atmosphere. Like we had wow. to dress up. We had to wear, you know, slacks and button-down shirts, and then we couldn't really cut up like we were doing. You know, we were very productive, but yeah. he saw cutting up, you know, cause as not being productive, you know. And then the whole office just became like this quiet tomb-like state. Yeah. You know, just whack. So eventually I got laid off, but I wanted to get laid off. Like, I heard they were doing layoffs, so I just was kind of like putting it out there. I wanted to be laid off, you know, like just having, it would be part of all my conversation. I go up the hall, you know, I think I want to be laid off, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I had these cryptic, like, you know, I'm ready to be laid off, you know, like. So it was kind of funny the day that um, I walked in and he said, Mark, uh, before I even unlocked the door to my office, um, he, you know, my white male boss was like, uh, come here, let's have a, you know, I need you to sit down and tell you something. I was like, okay, cool. And he had this solemn look on his face. And I was, you know, I had my, my you know, my poker face on. Yeah. And um, he was saying, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to lay you off. I was like, really? <laughs> And he like looked at me like really puzzled, like oh my yeah. god, I'm so happy. And uh, he was like, "What? You see this coming?" I was like, "I wanted it, you know." And um, this dude, this asshole, like walked me to my my office so I could make sure I wasn't stealing anything, and he had to sit in my office. It was like, man, you're a douchebag. Did he like, at least pretend like he was having a conversation with you? Nah, he was just oh, like sitting wow. in the corner, like watching me. And so you like, I was like, man, fuck you, man. <laughs> so I took my box. I already packed everything. Yeah. You know, I only had like oh, a couple ready, of little, ready. Yeah, I was ready. I wanted to be at it. You know what? I actually, it's funny because I remember, I remember when you got laid off because you were the, probably the first person that I knew that was like, yeah, I got laid off, man. I'm about to do my shit. Like, and that's what I did. Like, <laughs> like he was unfazed. He was just like, look, man, I'm about to make a movie. I'm about to hustle um do this do that do this do that and you have been hustling your ass off since yeah, then thick and thin i've been living off my wits since then yeah you know, like i'm um, just my talents or whatever um so bringing up the the short film i did it was a comedy about gentrification called here comes the neighborhood i want to redo that but even then it was really good you know it was was funny. and um so that being said, that's what got me in the Project Girl opportunity. It was like, hey, we want to show that movie. They putting the Pinkberry down the street. A Pinkberry. <laughs> These are lines from the movie. <laughs> so it was a satire about what it feels like to be, you know, in the atmosphere that's undergoing gentrification. Mm-hmm. So it was like all kind of over the top comedy and wittiness, which is kind of like part of my shtick. Like, um, so when I did the Project Row House situation, um, you know, they would say, hey, we want to show the movie, you know. And I was like, you know, I got all this other stuff. I've been doing documentaries. Yeah. I did. I got photography. That's amazing. And they were like, you know, we, we, just, we just really want to focus on the movie. Yeah. I was like, all right. So what I did was the opening day, I showed the movie. But um, I tricked out the inside of the house. Like, it made, like, a big Monopoly board. Um, I hired, like, Walter Stancil, who was, like, a 70-year-old. 70 plus year old man who's done like a lot of the hand painted sign art you see in the old hood businesses. Yeah. And he's been doing that since the 70s. And he was actually part of a documentary I've been working on where I interview like three or four other cats like that. Yeah. 
which I'll show all this in 2020. Um, but like, you know, and then I put I Love 3W on the outside, which, actually, which you know, for those who don't know, it's I Love Third Ward, the area that I'm in is historically African-American, part of Houston that's Beyonce and Solange are from. Um, so there's a lot of culture and history here. And as I saw, like a lot of the, the fading of the old reality of Third Ward to the new updated, you know, more expensive Third Ward. Yeah. Um, with new, you know, so like, expensive third ward. So a lot expensive. of yeah, a lot of white people moving in, <laughs> well, yeah. that sort of thing. Um, Walking their puppies, yeah, with their Starbucks in hand. So actually, the I love third ward design was something I thought of like ten years before that, but I didn't think people would really jump and yeah. like get in on it. Like people wouldn't really jump on it, you know. Yeah. They kind of like it wouldn't they wouldn't value as much as yeah. I did, you know, like as far as like um, a brand for a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the the house situation, you know, became very successful. It commanded a lot of attention. It, to me, I feel like it was one of the more successful art installations at Project Warehouse like throughout time. And I'm going to stand by that. Um, what I did was, um, so I had a big gigantic Monopoly board with all these motifs, um, transposed to represent third war like the street names were changed um some of the humor that i have like i yeah. put into that situation like too too loud railroad if you're in third war you hear the loud ass railroad train <laughs> railroad in the middle of the night um you know so made this big gigantic monopoly board really just as a as a um as a model to be duplicated by the hand-painted sign artists yeah and it was kind of moving too slow, and I only had such amount, a certain amount of time to, to have it op- by the opening date that um, I had to help paint. So I did a lot of the painting. Um, and but either way, I had this, 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 this whole design of a Monopoly board, the Third Ward edition, the Third Ward gentrified edition yeah. Monopoly board. And um, I was like, you know, I should just print this out because we're not because I wanted I was very ambitious at first. I wanted this whole thing to be hand painted on the floor. Yeah. And he was like, no, nah, just put on, the, you know, put on the wall. So then I, that's how that came about. Um, so I got the thing. I got the big Monopoly board printed out at Kinko's in the middle of the night. Basically, I took all my old talents and I funneled it in this situation. Yeah. Graphic design. I did all the. I did the whole board. Went to Kinko's in the middle of the night, which is when you used to get like free copies, you know, like pass the guy like a twenty dollar bill, you know, yeah. the copies you want, you know, blah blah blah. And um, so now, you know, same situation came about. Like I knew somebody at, at, at another university that had access to big plotters, and I printed out, but it can only do two by four, two feet by four. So I had to print two strips, yeah, of each half, and I was gonna like spice it together and get it laminated. And the guy at Kinko's, you know, like two o'clock in the morning, he like laminated them separately. I was like, dude, it's ruined. You know, he's like, nah, don't worry about it, man. I'm sorry, man. I did that wrong. So what I'm going to do is I'm printing this whole thing full color for 40 bucks. And I was like, that became um, the big Monopoly board that was in, yeah. the, in the house. Mm-hmm. And I just put on um, some plywood and put it on top of the table. A lot of the stuff I just kind of did on the fly. Like yeah. everything just kind of evolved. The big dice, I was on the hunt for like, I just looked at my house and I saw like a, a package that was, you know, a cube shaped package, like a box. And I was like, man, if I could find another um, box like that, I could make like some dice, some big ass dice. So, 
that never materialized because I couldn't find that same dimension. So I, I went to like, you know, UPS. I went to several yeah. FedExes. And um, only one FedEx had this. And it was kind of funny because um, I had to call around. And I went to finally the one on Main said they had them. So I went over there. I was like, hey, I need to buy like two 20-foot cube, uh, I mean 20-inch cube boxes. And the guy at the um, counter was like, we ain't got no boxes like that. I was like, man, they said I want it. Nah, man, I'm just fucking with you. I was the guy on the phone. He went right <laughs> over there. <laughs> That's perfect. So I spray painted them and put them in the house. The opening day was great. You know, like I acted like I was an auctioneer and auctioning off this house. And then finally I just say, you know, it was like performance. Art. I was like, finally I said, no, it's not for sale. This is our home. You know, and everybody yeah. was like feeling that. And um, that became the whole aesthetic of that situation with yeah. the anti-gentrification. Because that's how people feel and they feel helpless. So yeah. this became like an emotional support art situation where people kind of felt like empowered just by just the philosophy of what's yeah. coming from this house. And I did see it all over Instagram. Yeah. yeah. All over people Instagram. Taking pictures in I'll be sure to it. post my picture. Yeah. I mean, but it was people people that were visiting Houston that like yeah, they, were they heard about they needed from... to visit Project Row House. They went, they saw it, they right. posted it. And I was just like, yo, that's that, that's pretty crazy. So when you said just a few minutes ago, like, you know, you, you're pretty sure it was one of the most successful, you know, I'm, I can't I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to argue. I've, I haven't seen anybody else's house be posted that much and nobody there's been some great things I'm, i would say i will claim that house. you know like i have to get yeah. over humility and stuff and you gotta own what you did you know like yeah. own what your successes are and it's not like a thing of arrogance because people will forget or they'll play it off yeah they'll play you off yeah for like, sure yeah whatever that was last you know like motherfucker i did this shit like, yeah I, I like hit the culture hard. You know? Yeah. Yeah. People still got their shits on there. Oh yeah. And know? I mean, listen, people don't even know what the hell my hat says. Cause I have, I swear it's the only camo. I heart three W hat I've seen. Right. Since you made them and people see it and they be like, yo, where the hell you get that hat? They don't off even the know website. what the hell it means. Yeah, it's not the website. Yeah. And it's, it, it's a I love their website. Yeah. Surprised I didn't wear it today, but no running out the house. But, um, so I want to go back a little bit though, because you said it wasn't until, you know, that time after having that conversation with Rick Lowe mm-hmm. that you realized you were an artist, but bruh, Y'all listen, man. Mark took a trip to Ethiopia, yeah, and came back with some of the dopest damn images. And we had this conversation. He says that you could just turn around and take a picture because everything was just so beautiful. But if you look at the images, there's a lot more care put into that. Yeah, that's true. How long have you been shooting? Um, that was actually the first time I had a, like a a good camera with good lenses and in that 70. type of situation. With that 24 to 105. Nah, it was actually before 70. It was like was it before the 70? Yeah, it was like one of them Rebel joints. Oh, hey, listen. They had like a camera I could like make bouquet, you know, the blurry background yeah. and stuff. It yeah. wasn't even like a prime lens. It was like, and I had everything on automatic and that was before I even learned how to use the camera settings. Yeah. All right, we're recording now. So Ethiopia, taking pictures. Click, yeah. click, click. Yeah, so like um, 
back then I was still using uh, the manual set. I mean, the um, automatic setting on my camera. So yeah. Everything I shot was just composition. And um, I came up with some really awesome photography during that time period. Yes. Um, I enjoyed that shit. Um, and again, one art show out here. Because, you know, like I said, Houston, you still be in a bubble. And you, yeah. you can't really, after a while, you don't even... <laughs> You know, nobody, you know, oh, those pretty pictures, you know, that's, and that'll be, you know, yeah. instead of like, man, that is fantastic. You're going to be in another environment. And it's like, that's amazing. Golly. Yeah. yeah you know, sure. so, you know, like you can make, you can do dub stuff and then people just kind of like, oh, okay, that's, you know, that's cool. And then just go about your way. Yeah. You just don't think that you're dope, you know, like you have to, it's almost in Houston, you have to cultivate your inner egomaniac. Hmm. Like you kind of have to be feel like, yeah. At least tell yourself you're the superstar, you're yeah. the king of the world. You're the I think that world. was definitely true up until maybe a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. Now everyone like we're ha- Houston's having this renaissance where everyone goes to art shows and shit now. Yeah, that's interesting. Which is crazy, right? So now back in the day, there went no black yeah. people would show up to art shows. It'd yeah. be all white people, even if well, it's a mean, black show. You know, we didn't feel welcome then. No, nah, even if it's a black show in a black space. You know, like, but, it'd just be like, you know, it'd be all women, too, yeah. which is cool for me. But, like, <laughs> you know. Well, but, but I mean, th- this is true. But the thing is, and I noticed this as I was going to, to shows and things like that. Because, yeah, you're right. Like, it would only be a couple of black dudes in there. A shit lo- like, a, a good number of black women and a bunch of white folks who look hella comfortable. And it could be in the middle of the hood. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think part of that was that we even though it was in a black space. I feel like there were still a lot of black people that were showing black work for white gays. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oppress, oppress black. Yeah. Because, I mean, and it's it's kind of I, I was actually saying something like, to look, that look effect look what Whitey did to me yeah. type of, <laughs> that's yeah. still prevalent yeah that's yeah. still prevalent white it people is. buying that shit up too yeah. like you know that's, that's so I, I'm not knocking people that are getting the coin for that yeah I always try to be in the future like live in the future you know like uh, I always you know I just I'm never gonna do that I'm never gonna show like even taking pictures around third ward when I do photography it'll be landscape photography I don't like taking pictures of people because I feel like I'm exploiting them yeah. Like, yeah. hey, let me take your, hey, you get the bus stop, let me take your picture, which actually, actually probably would have taken a dope picture. Um, but it's just, that's just my yeah. thing. No, nah, that makes sense. Actually, we, uh, you know, you know my guy, Chap, right? Who? Chap. Oh, yeah. I yeah. Uh-huh. So he and I, uh, back in April, we did a show in Fifth Ward and, you know, we got a couple of. Fifth Ward going to be white. I'm telling you, it's just going to be white. It's not. I'm not man, a big. They they put a big ass city center type um, they're complex. Tr- they're trying to. That shit ain't. That shit ain't approved yet. Okay. Yeah. So they they fighting it. They fighting it hard. Third Ward ain't got no city center. How the it's hell? It's landlocked. There's no way they can make the city center out here. Shit, knock down some. Mama the last houses. piece of land that they could have done that would have been where H E B is now. That's true. That's true. But nah, like we we did a show and we got uh, we got a few offers for photos and i decided not to sell them because we wanted to make sure that because we didn't i didn't have the people's information Mm -hmm. um and i wanted to make sure if the photograph of them sold that i was able to give them some money oh that's smart so going forward we're still we're still going to be working on that project and going forward 
we want to make sure that you know we're able to get their information and that's that's know, a good idea invite yeah. them to the show we invited a few of the people to the show we had two people show up and one dude was just so geeked about that shit but i say all that to say that's the way that you can go about it okay you know what i'm saying like as you shoot give people's information and then you know when the show comes up invite them to the show if the piece sells kick them something you yeah. know what i'm saying i i never thought about that before because the thing is like i'm I never feel like I'm exploiting people um, because for me, it's the transformative quality. Mm -hmm. So if I photograph someone on the street and even if they look down and out, there's a beauty to that in that photograph. You know what I'm saying? Like seeing that, you're like, oh, shit, man, damn. It's like, nah, man, this person is still here. And I think, you know, for me, I know I can definitely attest to this and I know you may be able to, um, but like, the fact that people are still here and they going through they lows, that's a big damn deal. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So it's like even that, like understanding that in that photograph is beautiful. This person still has the will to be here mm-hmm. despite how downtrodden they look or upset or whatever. You know what I'm saying? So for me, it never feels like exploitation because I know I'm doing this out of admiration for mm-hmm. for them. Or I'd see something about them that's really special to me. So I want to capture that. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, as we as, as people listen to this conversation, they're going to realize exactly how dope Mark is if they haven't already. Because I'm actually, as we've been talking, like I've been remembering like shit, man. Like I've. I forgot even a lot of stuff, you know. But that's it. Yeah. I forgot that I experienced this shit with you. Yeah. I forgot, like, about, I forgot <laughs> about the Ethiopian pictures. Because I'm about to bring up something else that we, we talked about online the other day. Our Image Film Festival. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yo, five years. People, yeah. Raquel doesn't know what that shit is. I'm waiting for you to explain. So it was a, it was a black film festival. Um, that me me and a partner did uh, back in the day, like I guess ten years ago. Shit, yeah. Operated for like five years, um, and it was called Our Image because you want to see our image on the screen. Yep. You know, so like, so we would have found all the independent films because like back in the day, I would just go to different film festivals and I see great movies that I never would see the light of day after that, like. So my thing was like, I want to have an avenue to show these type of images in Houston because at the time there wasn't anything like that. Yeah. And um, so we'd have, you know, bands perform, like local great quality talent. And we did a monthly festival. We showed a Sly Stone documentary. It was like a Swedish guy that tracked down Sly Stone and yeah. made a whole documentary about it. Had a great interview with him. Um, the house party joint where you actually Skyped. With uh, that's the one that was at forty two twelve. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So. yeah. Um. Yeah. We had uh Reggie <laughs> Hudlin. Yeah. I forgot about that. We, yeah, she was dope. We skyped Reggie <laughs> Reggie Hudlin, where he could talk directly to the people that showed up. Yep. And I um, mean, he was talking about his time at BET. He was talking at the time he did a Black Panther cartoon. Yep. On his, his DVD. This was before <laughs> way before the movie and like all this shit you know like the average person didn't know about so yeah. we were like screening all this Terrence Nance did uh, Oversimplification of Our Beauty which which uh, Jay-Z had gotten behind um, and we showed that at Rice and you know he Skype dope Skype interviews um, the guy that did you know Medicine for Melancholy we had a Q&A with him through mm-hmm. Skype and I'm doing uh, what's the one that the movie that came out the the um, was it Moonlight? 
Oh, is it Moonlight? Yeah, I think that's what it was called. Moonlight or something. There is a movie called Moonlight. It must have been that. I think that was the name of it. Um, but that was before he did it. But anyway, like, um, so we're having all this really progressive stuff going on. Yeah. Like, we're just doing this really progressive stuff. Brought Talib Kweli in we had, on a panel I forgot discussion. about that. We had Talib Kweli. Talib Kweli, Chris Erskine. Um, Zen was on the panel with Talib Kweli. Yeah, R.I.P. to Zen. Yeah. But yeah, I think that what was we showed the public enemy documentary, which I still have yeah, not seen. I have a bootleg of it. I remember around. that at um that coffee house of our from yeah, Montrose Ecclesia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, what was dope about that is that, like, sure there was kind of the same, same interesting circle of people that mm-hmm. would show up. Mm-hmm. But the thing about doing a series is that you always capture a new eye or a new ear. Right. And that's what was dope. Like, it would be cool to see all your homies and be like, yo, what up, what up, what up, what up? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, there's this person standing in the back and they're like, yo, what's this? And you're like, oh shit, you don't know? Let, yeah. me, let me tell you, let me show you. And I think for me... Hold on, another memory. We had Ali Shaheed Mohammed yes. perform with the, uh, the Cashmere Stage Band, which is... Based the Thunder Soul documentary. Yep, that was at uh, where was that? House of Blues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was at House of Blues. Yeah, I actually have photos of uh, Ali from that show. Yeah, but I, I mean, forgot about all this. Stuff. Yeah, like, all I, that I, she I was buried, doing. It, I buried it in the back of my mind. Yeah, you, you know? brought in um, the last why, year. Why am I forgetting Andre's name? DJ Son. No, 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 no. Andre Prep School Negro. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot his name. Was that a descriptor? No, that's oh. the name of his his documentary, oh, okay. Prep School Negro. Like his life um, being part of prep school. Yeah, only black person at a prep school at Germantown Friends School outside of Philly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like for me, who you know, and this is before the masses cared about black content. Like yeah. I'm talking about black people before that shit was like before that shit was pop culture. You know what I'm saying? Because and that was great for me because. Before then, I had seen black exploitation films. I had seen Spike Lee films, mm-hmm. but that's it. Like right. <laughs> you know, what I'm saying I seen Boys in the Hood. I seen Menace. You know, what I'm saying I yeah. saw that, but I didn't see the other side of black cinema. And I got to see some. Uh, you showed an independent film from South Africa, I think. Um, was some, it a sci-fi one? Yeah, yeah, that was out of Kenya. Okay, out of Kenya. Yeah, yeah. that shit was dope. Pumsy. Like, like yeah, post-apocalyptic. There wasn't any water, and yep. it was just and, and that people I, were living underground. And that was dope. Like, what yeah. what made you think to do that? I know you've you, you've made films and things like that, but what made you decide to do the film festival? I just felt like it needed to be done, and um, like I said, it was like all this content that was out there that I just never saw again after when I would attend yeah. film festivals. Like the first movie I did was early two thousand, a dating comedy. So, I, but when I edited, I just wanted to go to film festivals and say, "Hey, I have this short film." I mean, nothing really came of that, but it was just kind of yeah. You know, I got it in a couple of film festivals, and um, people would clap at the end. You know, like people, yeah. some people were just like, "Yeah, this is great." But um, you know, I guess like when I was you know living in Houston, I'd be in a bubble, so you don't know how great your stuff is. Yeah, you know, like. Until you leave or whatever, like now you can be great and you can put it on social media and then other people can see it's great. Yeah, you know, but um, 
So what was I going to say? I went on a tangent. Reel me back in, man. So <laughs> yeah. So like the um the it just kind of like after a while, it was just became a burden to keep going because I didn't think like the masses really cared like that. Yeah. Like I had like a good crowd, um, but it wasn't just sustainable like that. You know, you know that like shit would go off now right yeah it did like national black film festival they kicked ass the first year because it was more of an open atmosphere for that sort of yeah thing, to receive that yeah so but houston like, still don't have one huh no houston we got the national black film festival really that's here yeah oh excuse me yeah it's big it's, Sorry, it guys. grows exponentially no every year it's like heavily patronized it's like a trip like like how that exploded and like we were just so struggling year after year no i don't think so i think it needed to be done Hey, I just got. I stole your idea. Nah, I, I like. Don't leave Because there's also like a Houston Black Film Festival that nobody goes to or whatever. Like. Oh, but um, I'm not gonna say that. I hope well, shit. I salute you. I salute you as the pioneer, man. Because oh, that you. shit, that shit was a big deal. Like that was really cool. I think some, some of the guys, some of the younger guys, um, like John. I know John got a lot out of that. Which John? Proctor. Yeah, that's a yeah. whole conversation. I, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, but I know. I know. <laughs> Stay that's away a, from that. That's an offline conversation. Yeah. I barely hear from that dude. Now. Yeah, yeah but I, I, I. But you know, even still, you know, it, it's it's interesting because we don't. I think we should acknowledge the influences that we've had, and I think like like I said, you being one of the first per- people I knew to be like. Got laid off, man. Fuck that shit, though. I'm good. You know what I'm saying? Like, I knew it had been done and that, you know, you relying on yourself and I'm saying you in a general sense at this point, but like you relying on yourself and relying on your talents, like that shit is like it's a reality. Mm -hmm. It can be done. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Um, And I'm, I'm pretty sure that in some way that influenced me when making my decision, you know what I'm saying, to dip. And I'm like, you know, I'm gonna be all right. I know some people that, you know, they're good. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So, um, yeah, I think, you know, it, maybe we don't take that time to acknowledge the influences that we see in one another because we don't, we think of them or we don't think of them in the forefront of our brain, but they might be latent. But mm-hmm. I salute you for that because there's a lot of shit that you've done and you're right. Like it has been way before other people saw that shit yeah dude you know way before because <laughs> i love third war was the first thing i did on a scale like that where it was right on time yeah it's always i've done stuff and it's, it pops in the future yeah and but that just hit hard like basically i took all my past skills and ran it through that situation like t-shirts yeah. like my college days yeah graphic design you know like a witty sense of humor you know like um uh, promotion like street promotion yeah. like how I does did, that make you feel it made me feel good I finally i felt validated and qualified you know yeah and i kicked ass at that like i worked very very hard at that yeah and you like, also hustled it, your ass off of that though every event you out there selling t-shirts right <laughs> you know what i'm saying i mean the hot sun like yeah. a lot of people don't see the behind the scenes stuff. Yeah. like um so yeah like even like how i did the cart i mean how i did the the, the um the pop-ups yeah. Like, I look back and, like, I was very in, in, ingenuitive about how I even set up my cart. You know, yeah. the, the color situation, everything was red, black, and white just because 
those are easy to find colors, you yeah. know, and all kind of stuff. So, like, you know, just even my whole system of, of organization for my T-shirts. Like, when I first started, it was like, just, I couldn't even fit stuff in my car because yeah. it was all over the place, boxes. Like, cardboard, <clears throat> cardboard boxes and stuff and uh, T-shirts and, you know, just, like, not no organization. And then each time I, each time I did it, um, I wanted to feel less burdened I wanted to feel less burdened by um you know my setup because yeah. it would take a lot to put all that together and then the more I did it the more I came up with all kind of hacks to make everything easy to set up and break down I put everything on wheels and like when I set up you know the tent or whatever I'd leave it on wheels you know yeah. and then that would be it and I learned a lot from the fellow vendors like the women they were all women that just had this whole like carla sue carly sue um and zinga who does the um um create was it she does the buttons inclusive inclusive randomness thank you like you know i have a brain (laughs) (laughs) so inclusive randomness especially in zinga because like that's what i learned the most about i was became very inspired by her hustle yeah and then Carly Sue, like her setup, like even both of them have great setups. And every time I'd ask, like, how do you do this? How do you do that? What's a good, you know, market situation? And which market should I not do? And they yeah. just kind of take me in. They had a whole um, network of black women vendors. And that was the one guy. Yeah. And, you know, basically we pump each other up and we have these really good times, you know, at these vending spaces. And, um, so that was great up until like everything kind of changed like um, the free market squares they used to do in third ward that kind of shut down and um, they moved the uh, the the black markets which you know those monthly markets were really great they moved to the um, the other situation was at the other location which is it was at HMAC Houston Museum of African American Culture because it was closer to third ward I mean, yeah. it just kind of fit better but then when it went farther I noticed like when I go farther out of third ward that's when you have a little bit of everybody doesn't really understand the dumbness of their award, so it's kind of like, um, damn, you selling t-shirts for how much? Whoo! <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, how much would you have wanted to pay for the shirt? And they wouldn't even, they just continued to walk off. They were already, they, they didn't, they wouldn't say. Yeah. You know, so I just, um, and what happened with that was like, Robert Glasper was supposed, was uh, performing at um, Emancipation Park, so I bought all these t-shirts, but like just a gang of, just, just, I think I ordered a hundred of each design or whatever. So I had all these t-shirts, and it was cold that night. They were supposed to wear them on stage. Yeah. And um, I gave one to Glasper. I got backstage and gave him the, one to Glasper. And he's like, oh man, we ain't wearing them on stage. It's cold. So um, I said, well, tell your crew, like, if y'all want, you know, come by my booth and just get whatever shirts you want, you know, I'll give them to you. And um, that never materialized. So afterwards, the after party was at Culture, and um, all the band was like... I got kicked out of Culture that day <laughs> for the after party. Oh, oh yeah, because they performed there. Yeah. They performed there, too, yeah. So, That's like, um, all the cats in this band and even surrounding musicians that weren't in the band, but they were, like, you know... What's his name? Michael Cox. Brian Michael Brian Cox. Michael Cox. Yeah. He was there. They all heard about the I Love Their War stuff. So it was like, yo, man, they get your shirt. I was like, cool, but I'm packed up. All my stuff is at home because I want my car to get robbed with my gear. Yeah. It's like, oh, man, I need to get them shirts. It's like, you can bang my website, you know? Yeah. Like, I had I had free. <laughs> you just yeah. get free. 
But I'm not going to go all the way home and get y'all shirts. You know, I love y'all. Um, but just to bring that up, like I had just a whole bunch of shirts. So I had to sell those over time, like, because I was stuck with all this merch. You know, yeah. like, there's a lot of risk in ordering different sizes. Everybody's has their taste of what they want. Yeah. So I had to rev up how to sell. I had to get really great at salesmanship. Yeah. I had to get really great at maximizing a situation. I had to get really great at um, promoting on social media, like promotion and like coming up with clever ways to make this, these same four designs fresh. Yeah. Like, so that, um, over time I finally sold it down to like 50 shirts, which I now have a regular bodega. I got to see how the sales going, but like, so, you know, that was just a very interesting experience. Like I'd yeah. set up in hot sun sometimes, like just just because that summer the heat was brutal. But I would yeah. still go out and have a you know set up. Yeah. And um, the power of social media, people would still show up and buy my shirts. So that was great. So the more I sold, the less I would have to pack, and um, it just became you know easier over time. I decided I wasn't going to. Um, re-up at that magnitude. Yeah. You know, now I want to do, I think I might do some hoodies um, before Christmas comes, like oh, a please. hoodie sale. Yeah. Please. Yeah. The good, I think you should. Soft kind. Yeah. I think soft. you should. I think you should. So what's next? Um, lately I've been just focusing on finishing up the documentaries that I've been working on, like uh, Dr. Freeman. Dr. Freeman and the TSU debate team. That's one I've been working on for eleven years. Basically, I'm primarily a filmmaker. That's that's my top thing. Yeah, and whatever other guns I could shoot, um, but that's the main one. I've been working on that for eleven or twelve years. I started when I was working at TSU. I actually was on the debate team when I was at TSU, so I kind of knew the character. Yeah, of who he was. And the stories that would come out of there would repeat. Like every year would be like somebody acts like this and this is how this situation would get handled and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And it was basically like a repeating loop. Yeah. So it was kind of interesting like how because I, I would just keep recording and recording. I show up, record, record um, this and that. And I'm going, there was a time when I was working at TSU, I had to record trips that I would be on with them, with the team. And um, I just had all these tapes and all this footage and like I would keep being becoming a better camera person so I I just didn't like my old footage and all this yeah. sort of thing and it just became like an endless loop of you know when can I stop this you know like when and um I felt bad because I wasn't finishing you know I felt like you know this is a big behemoth project and you know this guy's getting older I don't know when he's gonna you know leave us and that sort of thing and what if he leaves us and I didn't finish and that sort of thing I just like this burden, yeah. this emotional, ego, um, mental burden that would just get bigger and bigger. Yeah. And I'd have to step away from it to refresh my mind and then go back and then that would be this process. So I went until I saw um, the Defiant Ones on HBO that I got my huge inspiration to finish. Um, if anybody knows about Defiant Ones, that's the Dr. Dre and um, Jimmy Levine documentary which is like a four-part series and um it was great yeah, it was one of my favorite documentaries i didn't expect it to be that inspirational it was fantastic like that shit was amazing <laughs> and what i saw in it was like they had new footage mixed with their vintage footage from the 
from you know early '90s or whatever. Yeah. Like, you know, crappy VCR look. You know. Yeah. And I started. I looked at that and I was like, okay, that's an aesthetic. You know, I have vintage footage and I have current footage. You know, because my camera game kept getting better and I just kept shooting them. Yeah. So that combined with I just happened to be at my mom's house on a Sunday, and she you know watches Joe Osteen on TV. So Joe Osteen was talking about, um, you know, I'll paraphrase the sermon. He was talking about basically God knows how trifling you are, but he'll put you in situations regardless, <laughs> knowing how you would be. So your triflingness works to the advantage of the situation. Yeah. You know, so he brought out different biblical situations where that happened. Yeah. And, um, you know, your triflingness edged this thing on, whatever the, the overall picture was, because you waited on this situation and it was great because it, whatever, you know. Yeah. So I looked at that and I was like, um, you know, and then that combined with the Jimmy Levine and Dr. Dre documentary with the vintage footage going through time was I had progression of time. I had this dude, Dr. Frame, where he could still walk around and be, you know, yeah. talking crazy to the, the debate members and that sort of thing, getting all that on camera and going on a trip with him to, um, you know, him you know, just kind of walking around like with a stroller, you know, with a, uh, you know, whatever that thing is. I'll just call it a stroller. Oh, those rollator things? Huh? The, like, rollator? Yeah, the walking walking help, whatever, the, yeah. the apparatus. <laughs> so um, <laughs> then I got an art grant for it, um, so I kind of used that to help, you know, move the project along. And um, he was about to turn 100, so that became the closure you know, like he was going to have a big 100-year um, celebration at TSU. So it was like three days or whatever. So I taped that, and um, that became the closure of the project. And I got a chance to show him what I did so far. And actually, I showed, like, one of the dates, the birthday, you know, the first birthday, like that, the first celebration was actually on his birthday. Yeah. I got that in the documentary, and I finished that. I banged it out. And I showed it to him and his family on his son's birthday. Like his birthday was like a TSU brunch. So after that, I kind of walked away. I finally felt like I did God's work or something. You know, yeah. like I finally he was happy, loved it. The family stood up. It was like standing ovation. Wow, that's dope. Yeah, but I wanted you know like the whole people, everybody at the celebration to show up. But like, I think they just didn't get the memo how dope it was. So they were like. Um, yeah, you know, it was Melanie Lawson. It was like some other guy from the a newscaster from from the from the news station or whatever. And um, yeah, okay. So thank y'all for coming out. This is a documentary upstairs, Doctor Freeman. But yeah, thank y'all for coming out. <laughs> so I had yeah. to like go through the audience. Please come upstairs to the Tiger Room at TSU, and we'll be showing this documentary. Tiger Room. Yeah. So I had to like go, and the people that that listened, they showed up. Yeah. And um, they were very pleased. You know, like it was like it was amazing. Yeah. It's fantastic work. You know, so like, um, what do you have left to do? I want an orchestra soundtrack in it. Hmm. Like, I found there's actually like a company that does freelance orchestra orchestra soundtracks. Hmm. So I want that in there. So I got to raise money for that. Um, I want some animation in it. It'll just be continued iterations. Yeah. Like, I know I want to have like reenactments of certain scenes they talk about, the elders talk about. Because I interviewed a lot of people that just they passed away along the way. Mm. Like at the beginning, like yeah. people that were on the very first debate team. Oh wow! Yeah, so it's a great. It's a one. Like I looked at it when I finally got to a 
point where it was like a good start to finish story. And I was like, man, this is, this is fucking amazing. <laughs> this right here this is some fire shit. You know, like this is a, like I can't believe this came about like yeah. this. You know, because I was dreading it. Yeah. So long. Like, wow, Jesus. Wow. Why you put me in this situation? Why I say you? Why I walk over to the old man and say, I'm going to do this? I don't know why I'm trifling. I, I just don't deserve <laughs> all this. Why? So, yeah, at this point, I want to do like a big screening in the spring because I know they're going to Japan. Maybe it'll be a fundraiser for them or something. Yeah. And then I want to. Oh, that would be dope. That would yeah, be really dope. Put it in film festivals, do the film festival circuit. Ultimately, I want it in the Smithsonian, like the. Because they have a whole. Dr. Freeman section at the Black Smithsonian. Oh. Yeah, so I found a cat that I know in college knows the person that's over at the film department over there and like to reach out. You know, yeah. I was like, well, shit, reach out. You know, I'm ready. I'm down. Of you know, course. I, like, I want this when it's done. I want that to be a resting place so I can have bragging rights forever. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I got something in the Smithsonian. What you got? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm still system. alive. He's <laughs> <is> right. <laughs> Suckers. <laughs> Nah, I mean that's that's dope, and that uh, that sounds feasible. It sounds yeah, like it sounds like it's happenable. Yeah, that's happenable. A, yep, I just made that up. It's that's happenable. the main one. Then I got the Frenchies documentary, which is kind of on hold because Frenchies chicken. Yeah, they're on. They're kind of like um, waiting to get their new location set up before I could. So for some reason, I'm on pause until that's done. So it's interesting. Yeah, so I had I, sh- I shot a lot of great footage before I got bulldozed, the original location. So there's that. And um, other things, you know. Yeah. You, know, you doing general. any more photo projects? Uh, <clears throat> I want to, you know, if I could get another situation where I can hang my photos up, because I got yeah. all kind of stuff, um, like printed on metal, pieces of Third Ward that actually really had a successful art show, at a photography show at Art League. For anybody didn't know, um, he did. He it did. was it was uh, images of landscape, like buildings and that sort of thing in Third Ward. It was on the news. Yeah, it was on the news. Um, I sold mo- over half that show, which was you know, and I didn't charge like cheapskate prices. I didn't charge beginner prices. Like I just, <laughs> you know, I charged a good start out price. Yeah, you know, like the most. For a piece was like fifteen hundred bucks. The lease was like three fifty. So it was like the spectrum of different prices. And um, so I sold like a good chunk of my show, like over yeah. half, which was for somebody that nobody knew the name of somebody in the art space like that. I did really well. Yeah, that is good. Yeah. Anytime you can sell half a show, that's that's great. Yeah, and I didn't do that. Like here's a fifty dollar print. No, I didn't do that. I was like, you know, lowest I got is three fifty, and I only got one of them. Yeah, <laughs> and the others are fifteen hundred. You know, the others are five hundred. You know, so the next situation, like the next um, gallery situation, where I could just hang hanging on walls and have like an event. Yeah. You know, that'll be the next time I do like a show like that because I have all kind of prints I didn't show that day that are great. Right. Let me ask you this: what What do you consider success for you for your work, other than the Smithsonian? So. Because that's happenable. That's going to happen. That's a good question because it fluctuates. Like, um, you know, grants and finishing a project is awesome. Um, I think success would be for me, like, where I don't have to introduce myself or, mm. you know, people already know, like, okay, when you come out with something else, I'm ready. You know, I got the money yeah. in. You know, yeah. like, yeah. Uh, like.
like I want to put you in this gallery space or this museum, you know. You know, so that would be success for me. And then just the the the, the pride of doing something great that people like, you know, the, the engagement of yeah. the community. Because I always think, like, what's the point in doing it? I mean, you can do it for yourself, and that's cool. Um, but I like the engagement of the community as well. Like, I want people to show up to whatever, you know, I could come up with that will engage them. There's one thing, like, if you do an event or something, nobody shows up, is that. But I want to be a brand on my own. Like, Mark Fury is a brand versus, like, you know. Yeah. Because that ain't my real name. I don't go name Newsom. <laughs> I know that. Yeah. So, like, um, I want Mark Fury to be this brand that, like, whatever I do, people are, like, into. Yeah. You know, it was monetarily buying something or, like, just showing up. Like it has the Mark Fury stamp on it. Right. Yeah. You and his wife. <laughs> That's my Trader Joe's water. Keeps me hydrated. Trader Joe's mineral water and it's sparkling, too. I can't drink straight sparkling water unless it's got some lime in it, but that's just that's me. Oh, this has, this has berries. Oh, shit, man. I had a star for <laughs> Well, water. shit, oh, yeah. Negro. <laughs> Trader Joe's sparkling water does hit. Three hundred thousand dollars. Oh, that was lying in the movie. I had it to, actually came true. Like just <laughs> Mark. Mark was in. Mark Francis was in the first the little short film I did on gentrification, the comedy. Yes. Here comes the neighborhood. Yes, and, I am uh, now a thespian. Yeah. So he comes in. His line is like, "I just sold my home for three hundred thousand. What? Yeah. Three hundred thousand? Yeah. Everybody runs out to buy it, sell their houses. Shit was so goofy. I was probably fifty pounds heavier. Ooh, Chile. Hey, there's more of you to love. <laughs> <laughs> Fat bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, if I'm not making fun of you, I don't love you. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do you think? you would enjoy most out of all the work that you do if you could only do one if you could only do one thing if you could take pictures if you could make a movie if you could only do graphic design which would you enjoy which would you pick to do mm, they're all my babies all my babies <laughs> but you gotta, everyone has a favorite child yeah, it's one you, you would babies. drop if you was running. All my babies. <laughs> <laughs> I would drop graphic design. Um, just And I think it's more like, because people don't pay for it. They like do it for free. <laughs> like, that's, why, that's one reason why I quit doing graphic design for so long. Yeah. Now I just do it. You can do that shit on Canva. I'm I do that shit for me too. now, you know. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Filmmaking takes a lot and it takes the longest I enjoy photography. It just fluctuates, man. I can't even really answer that right. But I'll just say, like, if I really had to just give up everything and just stick to one, I'd be like filmmaking because I like screening stuff and I like people there and I like happiness. You know, that's what yeah. I mean. Yeah. Okay. Let me ask you this, though. I, and this is a heavy, a little bit of a heavier question. All right. Um, you don't have to answer it if you don't want to. Okay. But I find. I'm that, not going to answer that. <laughs> nah, I find your. Um, your approach to self-care because I've, I've talked about my depression mm-hmm. on the podcast mm-hmm. um, at length. Right. <laughs> um, and you and I have had a couple conversations mm-hmm. about, off, about off, off mic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but what is your self-care like? Because I, 
or can you talk about that? Because as artists, we have we spend a lot of time alone. Yeah, <laughs> and, the shit. and that's fucking depressing. <laughs> <laughs> but you have if you want to if you want to cure depression, don't be an artist. <laughs> <laughs> but nah, you have some interesting takes on self care uh, yeah. when it comes to um, those low periods. Yeah. Um, so if you could talk a little bit about that and how you kind of combat those things. Well, one thing is like you gotta. It's like you gotta continue to work your magic. You know, because if you don't, that's when you get depressed. You got to keep the momentum going, the air moving, you know. You know, obviously, you know, personal self-care is like, you know, exercise. You got to drink a lot of water. You got to eat the right foods. Stay away from fast foods because the chemicals make you depressed. Um, Basically, if you're like a hypersensitive person, if you do creative stuff, you're kind of prone to that. If your brain thinks a lot, you know, you wear down. Like, I go to acupuncture lady, too, and she's like telling me about, you know, Thinking a lot wears down your gallbladder and your liver functioning, which contributes to a snowball effect of depression. Mm. It's like you have a spectrum of emotions, you know, like anger begets depression, you know, like fear, you know. It's just like a like a whole ladder that you go through to get to this this gear. Yeah. It's like switching of gears. So if you if you're depressed for a prolonged period of time, you you're just stuck in the wrong gear. So once I started looking like that, I was like, okay, how do I get back to the right gear? Because I'm really fucked up right now. Like I went, I think I went through three months back to back um, with depression, like severe, like I had severe depression in a minute. Yeah. And when you're in severe depression, you kind of forget what your hacks are. So I had to like go remind myself what the hacks are. So one of the things um, I definitely swear by is uh, any type of high chlorophyll type of food. Like, for example, like if I would do salads, it would increase the frequency of my brain. I'd feel better. But I'd have to do it for a while. Another thing is spirulina. Like, you do it in a smoothie. You know, it's like seaweed. Yeah. You get that from Whole Foods. That helps my brain. Like, everybody got a different situation. But that's that would help my brain. Like, vigorous exercise. Not just walking, but like throwing a kettlebell and sprinting, you know. Yeah. It gives you, like, a boost to your serotonin. So, these are all mechanical aspects. Yeah. Of getting yourself out of depression. You got to move around. Cold showers help. You know, I got like different hacks. Yeah. And like if I, if I let it go too long, then it'll just, it'll be there. It's hard to get out of. So yeah. it's like, you got to work extra hard. Like, you know, not being alone, alone a lot. Like if you have friends that you like, you know, talk shit around, you know, party with, that helps. Like, you know, yeah. Christmas time is big time for depression. Um, you see all these happy pictures on, you know, social media. Social media is trash for, like, giving you depression. <laughs> yeah. You know, had a job you don't like, and you're around people that don't give a fuck about you for, like, your prime hours of the day. That's depressing. That so it's like you got to, like, you got to exercise your happiness like um, like you exercise your body. You know, yeah. like, you got to do stuff that gives you joy. Got journal, get that shit out. It's like a frequency, energy. You just gotta get that shit out, you know. Like, um, so it's different things that different that work at different times. It's never, it's never one thing that. Yeah. So it's like I have to have a bag of tools. All right, this one didn't work. You know, this one work. You know, sometimes music, certain music, some tones, some frequencies in music. You know, snaps me out of depression. Yeah. Um, hey, gold by Bondax is my shit. 
What is that? So Bondax is a they're like a electro pop group. Okay, cause that sounds like a like a um, one of them uh, <laughs> condom brands. <laughs> it's what it like. <laughs> with the nine um, with the nine oxanol nine to irritate people's skin. <laughs> 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 that's what it sounds like. That's the first thing about no, the way. <laughs> it's a song called Gold by Bondax. Yeah, it's still, it's, it had changed. It's still, I still Yo, feel like that's nah, what, that shit, that song, that song is mean. Like, it's a great song. It just made me think. I'm going to check it out, man. That's like, like gold Bondex sounds like some shit you put in your car, too. Like, yeah. That's what that shit sounds like. Or it sounds like some type of talcum powder you put. Yeah. In your I, don't use, I don't use baby powder. I use Bondex by gold. <laughs> what the fuck? I can go out to the world and say that shit. People believe it and then go to Walgreens looking for that shit. Hey, y'all got Bondex? <laughs> I'm looking for Bondex gold. The gold guy. Yeah. Uh, might be about a Magnums. I don't know. <laughs> um, Laughter is definitely one of those things, man. Yeah. Let's think about it. For me, like cracking jokes, talking shit, like it, that's definitely a good one. I, I, I felt like that was a good question to ask you. One, because like, I was just talking to my wife earlier, and this time last year, shit was getting crazy. <laughs> shit was a little scary. My birthday is next Friday. Um, well, by the time this airs, it'll be the Monday before my birthday. Mm-hmm. So whatever, November 8th, I'll, I'll put my uh, cash app on the Instagram like these millennials. Y'all send me some shit. Anyway. Like the millennial uh, he is. Anywho, um, nah, this time last year was when... There was a lot of arguments. My mood was crazy all over the place mm-hmm. because I, and I told you about that. Like yeah. my birth, I spent my birthday in the hospital mm-hmm. um, when uh, my boy Brian came to the crib, got me, you know, Brian, Brian Ellison yeah. came to the crib, picked me up, took me out to the, uh, to the hospital. So I was thinking about that earlier when I was talking to my wife and I was like, you know what? I'm going to ask Mark. Cause Mark, it, yeah, every time I talk to Mark, even if he's not having in a great period, he's usually like, man, it's cool. You know, I just got to figure out, you know what I'm saying? Which, which one of my tricks going to help me out? Yeah. Not, not a disrespectful name for women. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> I am so triggered. <laughs> <laughs> but his, his, his self care tricks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got a lot of those, like I got from, you know, therapy, because like, I would always only go to holistic therapists that could do Reiki and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, because when I, when I, my first journey into therapy was when I was at TSU, they had a therapist on campus and, you know, I would get ins- health insurance, but um, she was trying to put me on meds. I was like, nah, I'm not going to do meds. And then um, she, I came back to get another session where she like got another gig or something. So then I looked for other therapists and it was the same thing. Let me put you on meds. Yeah. It was like, fuck you and fuck you and fuck, you know, you're cool, <laughs> but fuck you too. <laughs> you're cool. I'm I like you, but you try to put me on meds. <laughs> so um, I would run across. Y'all didn't know that shit was from uh, half baked. Yeah. <laughs> fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. You're, you're cool. cool. But fuck, fuck you. you. I'm out. Anywho, um, yeah. So, so through a sequence of events, I got led to like, you know, people, you know, holistic therapists like Hitaji Aziz, um, Alicia Jackson. They're both really great. And so that kind of started my journey of, 
you know, it's yeah. like looking at it from an energy standpoint, yeah, like a frequency standpoint, um, how to get yourself out of those frequencies, yeah. you know. Um, and so that's where I'm at now. Like I just like now I can get myself out of it. It just takes time. Like you know, just this happened this year. Just got hardcore, and I got myself out of it eventually. But the chlorophyll, like for some reason, it helped. Like I was googling like a a lady that um, I know. She was like suggested bay leaves. So I kind of googled that and depression. And also in the same article, I saw um, spirulina. <clears throat> so I just having this spirulina in my in my kitchen because that's where I got all my my holistic hacks. Yeah, because you're making your, your smoothies and your yeah, juices put in and this, stuff. Uh, yeah. Actually, I put the first time I tried it in water, but like it coagulates, so it just becomes like gooey, like but clumped together. Like you, you can't even mix it hard enough. So that like sounds like snot. But it helped. It helped tremendously. It's like it snapped me out of it, and then I like um, did um, put it in a smoothie next time. So now I just doing the smoothies. Yeah. This time of year, when the weather changes, has an effect on the human brain. The sads. Yeah, you get the sads. Like um, now is like today would be a prime candidate. It was a gray sky and that sort of thing. Because um, I know gray skies would really fuck with me unless I'm just in a really good state. Yeah. Like you're just like fuck. You know, like I just feel like God, this is crazy. I'm like, you know, and then that's when I kind of realized it was definitely a chemical thing because um, I know better at this point. I know, like, okay, I'm in. This isn't real. You know, I know it's like a chemical thing, so I got to figure out how to get yeah. gear back right now. So now I can talk myself through it and function. Yeah. But if I'm not in that state where I could logically think through it, I'd be like in my bed all day and just never yeah. leave. You know. Does your because I know sometimes for some people, like they can only work when they're up. Yeah. Other people can only work when they're low, which is crazy to me. Like that's yeah. just, just dangerous. Um, do you, which do you work better when you're up or definitely when I'm up, or at least in the mid in the middle? Does like, working help improve your mood? It gets my mind off of it. Okay, so it doesn't necessarily then, improve it, but it just kind of gives you an it, escape. Sometimes for a it like um. It keeps, you know, because also I don't mind, you know, it's devil's playground, that whole thing. Yeah. So um, getting engaged in the project will sometimes snap me out of it. I had a friend, um, her and her husband, like she was just kind of like in, a, in like a depression. Like she just wouldn't get off the couch for like three days, right? So the husband kind of like knew it was kind of like had an inkling of what was going on with her. So he went out, didn't say nothing, but came back with a with a box. And he went over to her on the couch. He's like, hey, I need you to help me with something. He just started like going over, opening the box and then putting it together. It was like a tent. So I was like, hey, can you just hold this thing while I did this? So yeah. it kind of sucked her out of it. They got her mind going. Like, yeah. And he started putting this tent together and they slept in the tent, you know, like this. <laughs> And he got out of. I'm making short film. She don't know that, but I'm make it. Make that a short film. That actually sounds really dope. Yeah, it was short. That's that's, that's gonna come. And like, um, so I learned from that. Like, you know, because she she actually turned me on to the first holistic therapist that I would eventually go to for years, and um, it helped out tremendously. So, <clears throat> yeah, I'm very open about you know me going to therapy and like you know when I was having panic attacks and like yeah. the hacks that I found. I got a lot of hacks from when I posted on Facebook because um, it's like when Hurricane Harvey was around like 2016 and everybody was dying mysteriously 
at a free high, higher frequency than normal. Um, you know, I was miserable. You know, I couldn't work. You know, I couldn't really. Um, yeah, I couldn't work. I couldn't earn money, so I was living on my credit cards and shit. So, like, because um, there's no real help for like if you not, not don't have insurance, or if you're a grown ass man. Yeah. You know, nobody's gonna feel sorry for you. Nobody's gonna be like, hey, let me take you under my wing, and you know, you need a place to crash. Nobody's gonna do that for you. Yeah. That's not to be expected. No. <laughs> it's like not as an at all. adult, full blown adult, especially a black male adult, you're supposed to be able to handle all your weight. You know. Yeah. So. You know, like I had to just like coast through that, and like it wasn't until actually that that was you know so I was getting panic attacks like the first time I got a panic attack I was driving to the airport and I had a white lady in the back I was taking her to the airport and um she was uh I started having this overwhelming fear feeling and my heart was racing it was like I just felt like I wasn't there and I was driving I kept having this imagine you know am I having a stroke am I having a heart attack I don't know what this is you know at the time like two of my friends died you know Zen and my friend Vaughn yeah. They both died in these violent car wrecks. So I was like, you know, maybe I'm next, you know. So it was like all this. And then Trump had just gotten into office. It was like November of 2016. And I was just like losing my mind while I'm driving somebody to the airport. Somebody yeah. I didn't really know. And they were white. Yeah. They were female. So I was like, listen, do you have any like aspirin? I was just, you know, I don't know what's going on. She's like, you know, what's, what's, what are you feeling? I was like, I just can't stop breathing. I can't stop thinking. So like, oh, just pull over. She was really nice. She was a really sweet person. And like, um, so we go over, um, pull over into a gas station parking lot. <clears throat> and um, she was asking me, so what do you, you know, what is it like? And I described what it is. Oh, you're just having a panic attack. I get those all the time. Hell, let me, let me um, give you some water. So she goes out, she brings me back like some soda pop or something. And that distracted me. It snapped me out. And that was normal. I took it to the airport. And she said, like, yeah, you got to breathe through it. Um, just control breathing, and it helps, like, a lot. So I was like, cool. So I dropped her off, and, you know, head back the other way, and I have another one while I'm driving. So after a while, like, I get home, and I'm just scared. When is yeah. the next explosion going to happen, you know? And um, <clears throat> I was keeping it to myself because I didn't know what to tell about that shit, you know? Like, I didn't know what, you know, I was yeah. like, was happening. I was doing float tanks for a while. Those helped tremendously. I didn't have them, you know, when I was doing that. It was calming my brain down. And then Hurricane Harvey, you know, I had them every two hours. Like, I woke up, like, I was sleeping fine. And I had just had this um, crazy feeling, like, this shit is about to hit the fan yeah. in my dream. And I wake up, and I was like, oh, shit. And it just, like, started, like, it was like I was getting electrocuted every couple of hours. I tried oh, to calm wow. myself down because I didn't know how to get out of that, you know. Yeah. So... I would tell people about, so when I finally became open to telling, talking about it to people, at least that I knew, um, without fail, everybody that I told about it, oh man, you're just having a panic attack. I've been having them shit since I was nine. Hell, I had one just now before I, before you called. <laughs> Yo, let's go to Whole Foods. Wow. I'll show you what I get. Okay. So we go to the Whole Foods um, section where the herbs are and the supplements. And um, I asked the lady in that section, um, you know, what do I take for, you know, panic attacks? <laughs> and um, she's like, oh, you have panic attacks? Ah, oh, man, I get those all the time. Look, this is what I take. I take this or that, that, the other. So I would take these, you know, and they would work, like different herbs work, um, but they're real strong. These herbs are strong. Like, and, and I just feel like lethargic. 
So over time, like, um, you know, I would try different things. My acupuncture lady would turn me on to different things. She's like, you know, she basically told me like um, a lot of panic attacks or hyperactive vagus nerve, which kind of controls, you know, it's like a lot of nerves around your heart. And yeah. So when you get that, she told me the physical aspect of it. So you got to be able to soothe that, calm that down, take ashwagandha, which is probably the best hack. I tell everybody about ashwagandha. Um, That's an adaptogen, right? I don't know. It's like Indian herb. You know, using the messy T word, so I don't know what adaptogen <laughs> and shit. I don't know what. Never so, mind. Never mind. So, yeah, like, I posted on Facebook, like, hey, what do you guys do for, you know, panic attacks and it was like this long thread yeah, that lasted I actually remember that days thing. of like people posting their hacks so I tried those different hacks and I'm ashwagandha kept coming up so I like just continued to do that and it was actually a very good herb like um because I was afraid I would ever I was afraid of getting, going on flights that's how bad it got like it got to the point where like if I had some coffee it would just, just yeah this is part of the time of day that I knew I would get a panic attack and like um it was one time you know, I had this gig um, way out in uh, Klein, the Klein area or something. I guess it was Klein. Kingwood, Kingwood. Okay. So I'd be driving home and, you know, you got, you know, the traffic closer to downtown and I'd start waking out. I had to pull over and calm myself down because I couldn't drive. Yeah. That's how bad it was getting. So I was like, fuck, flying. I'm never going to get a plane ever, ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I went to it. I didn't ever get on a plane. But now after a certain point, I was like, I got to live life. Fuck this. So I started, you know, using the different hacks. I have different things in my car and in my kitchen. But the thing that I just kind of stick to now is like just ashwagandha. So this week, actually, this weekend actually went out of town because I need to get to the point where, um, you know, if the zombie apocalypse happens, you know, and you get no ashwagandha, what are you going to do? You can so, handle that shit. Yeah. So I had to like get to the point where I was, had a stronger mind than my panic attacks. Yeah. So now I have like different mental hacks to get me out of it. Like, um, you know, breathing sequences, I'm looking for different shapes around me. Like, okay, I got to find four circles. Yeah. I do colors. Yeah. Yeah. Colors. Um, you know, it was like a, 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 a meme that was floating around about five different things you smell and four different things you see and three different, you know, just like yeah. this, this, this hierarchy of, Grounding yourself. Yeah. So I would use that. I use all kind of like, so now I got hacks. I'm a Stokey Bashwaganda close. Um, but when I was out of town, I was, you know, hanging out with friends, but I left the jar in my hotel room. So at first I was like, shit, what if something happens? And some was starting, you know, to come up, but it was like, it's mental. Yeah. So the more we started like making fun of each other, like, you know, guys do when they're by themselves and nobody's around, nobody make, you know, you know, I guess judge them. Yeah. It snapped me out of it. Like I was, you know, I was walking around, just, we were just making fun of each other and it was just funny. And humor is definitely great for yeah. anxiety. Definitely great. For sure. Um, I want everybody to heal. That's why I said all this. This is a long diatribe, but I hope some no. of y'all out there, I mean, you know, like got some of what, what you know, no. might help you, you know. Yeah. yeah. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about is the um, sense of community in the art world. So right. I've met you a few times okay. at different art shows or um, art screenings. And I was like, Mark's always 
there. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted you to kind of speak to why do you think it's important for artists to kind of support each other and build that community? And what's been your takeaway or why is that important? Or it seems important to speak to. I go to art shows because I fundamentally like art. Mm -hmm. Like I was going to them before I had anything going on art wise. You know, I just liked it. You know, I used to like take pictures at them, you know, document stuff, even record video at them, you know, like stuff that would have performance art. Um, I just liked it. I just liked the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. At least in a utopian mindset, I like the fact that I get to see the same people. It's refreshing to see, you know, like sense of a community. Um, I don't know if it's like really communal, but it's just I'd see people, you know, that say at these spaces. Um, as far as community, I think if it was our community, more collaboration. I don't think there's a lot of collaboration, um, at least that I've seen. You know, it's kind of like me, myself, and I, my brand or whatever. I've always been open to collaboration. Some people act on it. Most people don't. You know, most people. What does collaboration look like to you? Let's work on a project together. Mm. You know, let's make make some art together. Let's do a, like a performance art piece together. Like, let's make a movie together. You know, stuff like that. Why do you think people shy away from it? Um, I think primarily in Houston, that's kind of like always been the case. It's like an isolation thing. Like, I don't want to... Um, I don't really have an exact answer. Mm-hmm. I just know it didn't take place like that. Like, I've always approached people to say, hey, let's work on a project together. You know, and I just, it wouldn't, it might happen once or twice, but it wouldn't be continuous. Okay. One thing I noticed, there was, well, there was like a video that Questlove, it was a Questlove interview, and he said the importance of having like a tribe or a clique, he used the term clique, like, because he said like, um, even when um, his band, The Roots, um, it didn't pop. Um, they didn't pop individually until I think somebody said, "Hey, I want you to meet this is Common, this is Erica Badu, mm-hmm. you know, this is these cats," and they had like a crew, and they'd all they'd all push each other out, you know, and that became like a vibe, you know. So I never really found that out here. I never really found a tribe in Houston, okay. and I think that has to be more so just the atmosphere of the place because I've always been open to it mm-hmm. and I've always expressed that I'm open to it, but that's just how it is. Like sometimes um, I'll even approach people and say, hey, we need to work together. And they'll say, yeah, yeah, and it never materialize, but they'll canoodle among some other people. And I think a lot of times, like if you shine a little bit, like if you, I think there's this thing about as opposed to seeing somebody as somebody me as somebody to collaborate with, I've seen like a lot of people like, hey, um, I want to use him as a benchmark of what I have to outdo. Mm. So when you have that prevalent type of um, mindset, you don't really have a lot of collaboration. You kind of like, I, well, much I got to top that. You know, he set a, a new bar, so I want to go beyond that bar. You know, as opposed to like let's crew up, because mm-hmm. in other cities, natural like New York. Um, I had friends that live in a certain area of New York that would go visit. And um, this one guy, he had the same camera skills as I did, you know. Another guy, he wrote scripts. Another guy, the lady, there's a lady that could edit, you know, and somebody else had the lights, and they just make these little movies they put on the internet. And some would get finished, and others would, wouldn't, but they would just start networking. And um, my friend, you know, now they got a show on HBO, you know, uh, what's it called? Um, uh, random acts of flyness. Oh, that's, 
that show is very strange. But yeah, I it's very it. strange, but it's on HBO. I enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. But you know, it's a different place too. You like, you go have coffee somewhere, and like somebody's like, um, "Yeah, I'm executive at HBO." Yeah. Oh shit! Let's you know, let's get your car. You know. So they actually did the first episode for free and pitched it, and they bought it, and it was like, "Okay, can you make some more?" And that's how that grew out of it. You know, somebody had special effects skills. Yeah. And nobody got paid for that, but like the making it, but they did it together and it became something. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's kind of interesting how, so I don't really see, I think now I'm seeing that happen out here, but it's like younger people. Like okay. they know each other and they kind of like, you know, I feel like I'm out of that loop, you know, because I've even said, hey, I want to collaborate with y'all. Yeah, okay, cool. And they like do it among themselves. Mm-hmm. I think like, I don't know what that is, but that's what it is. Okay. You know, so I just like put it like that. Yeah, but your peers, like the people that I know you were like in school with and shit, like they They didn't do that, yeah. They what? didn't, but now they're 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 very they're very ready to help. Mm-hmm. You just gotta ask. Okay. And I think sometimes that pride gets in the way. Yeah, there's a lot of pride out Yeah. Yeah. Cause I know like, you know, Hodge, I'm like, hey. You're my mentor. Oh, okay, cool. Like, you know what I'm saying? Hodge is very much like, okay, whatever you need, like, just let me know. Right. And with, with everybody. Right. Rebea is as well. Yeah, Rebea has always been um, nice and Hodge. Lovey. Yeah. Like, you know, a lot of those people are, are, are very, very willing to help. And I think, I do think sometimes we get caught up in our own bubbles. Right. Um. I know you very much get caught up, <laughs> caught up in your own bubble, kind of mm-hmm. making, making things happen. But I think, you know, it's. I think of. I think there are a few people here that are willing to collaborate in that way, like kind yeah, of like, idea salons and things like that. Yeah, because I used to have like powwows in my house, like you know, like just if you have an idea, like flesh it out. Yeah, and a lot of those people that would go to those powwows are doing really well right now. You yeah. know, but they moved. They moved to New York. Yeah, like I, I know three, four off the top of my head that did. They used to come. We'd sit in the next room. Yeah, and we talk about what we want to do, and we pump, pump each other up, and then you know they kind of move, which so, is so cool. Why, why are you not wonderful. doing it now? I know huh? you do. I know you do your May the Fourth party. May the Fourth party. Don't you do a a a, a start a, a party in May usually? No, nah, I never done. I would just say, hey, meet me at Dean's or something. <laughs> when they would have that. I could, it Dean's. was some party that you used to have at your house. No, nah, that was the Christmas costume party. Okay, Christmas costume. That sounds fun. It yeah. does sound fun. Are you going to do that this year? Can we get an invitation? Yeah. Okay. Don't invite her. No, don't invite me. She's like eight years old. She's 28. Thank you. <laughs> same, same. 20, 28-year-old woman is a full-blown woman. You know, anything underneath that is just individual basis. <laughs> <laughs> so we have delayed adolescence. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. This is a of delayed adolescence. So. Y'all over here having this great conversation. I came in and derailed that shit. You My did. bad. Nah, fuck that. No, I'm, we were I'm the about, We were talking about you are. I'm, I'm the wet blanket. But That's we were true. talking about the art community. And I was saying I always see Mark at everyone's shows and out there supporting. Yeah. I mean, it's... Houston has factions. Clicks. It's clickish. It's yeah. Been like that. It is clickish. But at the same time, it's like... There's no beef between anybody. Those are just the people you hang with. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? The people that you're comfortable around. Right. Um, and I'm realizing that now as I'm sitting in different rooms and shit like that. And I talk to people and I'm like, yeah, I know them, but mm, 
It's like, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> or it's like, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're going to a show together. We're doing this, we're doing that. You want to tag along? Like that kind of thing. Like it's it's very interesting. Um, but I think some of that is just it's people's prejudices yeah, and preconceived pretty- notions as opposed to there actually being an issue. Because everybody in the art community, for the most part, in Houston is pretty friendly on an individual basis. It's just they have those people that they've worked with for a really long time. Yeah, and they're comfortable with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the, the, that group of people goes to those shows. This group of people goes to these shows. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. And then there's a there's a there's a divide that's very interesting, like. Uh, Latinx people, black people, a couple of others. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And then there's like a white person that crosses over between the the groups. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side, it's mostly the whites. And then a couple of like, a couple little dots of Mm-mm. whatever. Mm-mm. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's a very, it's a very interesting divide because mm-hmm. you can't, you can't 100% say it's based on race or ethnicity, but that's definitely an undertone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but no, I mean, I think our, our our community here is small. Actually, it's bigger than we think it is. Yeah, probably so. It's bigger, it's bigger than we think it is. It's just the shows that people go to, again, are usually like the same, mm-hmm. same people, same crowds. I know that you're going to have work in the Smithsonian soon. Um, Yay. The Black Smithsonian, because that's where we want it. The Jacksonian? The Black Smithsonian. I know. I was just trying to give it a black name. Jenkinsonian? (laughs) (laughs) No? (laughs) I mean, if you think about it, Smithsonian's a pretty black name. Yeah. Uh, Smith and Steen isn't. But Smithsonian. <laughs> Funny, man. <laughs> no, nah, man. Um, I it's interesting because it's like, you know, you've you've done a lot of things, a lot of really cool shit that people people do remember. You may have forgotten about some of the cool shit you've done, but um people remember. I know I remember. Thank you. I didn't realize that I remembered as much as I did. <laughs> yeah, I realized how much I forgot. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Andre Robert Lee is his name. Oh, yeah, yeah. Prep School Negro. Prep School Negro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, who sells government cheese hats. It's pretty funny. Yeah, that's pretty funny right there. <laughs> but, I've never had government cheese. Like, I never had. Oh, that shit's disgusting. Yeah. It's it kept really hearing. hard to cut. Yeah, it kept it hearing doesn't right melt. It does. But you got to burn it and then just. It kind of cheese. It kind of like, relaxes, yeah. but it don't melt. Yeah, that's that's a very good Like, you heat that shit and then do this. That shit's plastic. Yes. That should be like. <sighs> It's a deep side cheese. <laughs> <laughs> that sound like chemical bricks. Mm-hmm. You That's some, essentially what it was. You want some cyan cheese on your on your nachos? I'm trying to make a grilled cheese sandwich with it. Yeah, no, nah, you really? can't make shit with that. <laughs> Except for constipation. <laughs> I heard about that. You can use that shit to hibernate. That's it. <laughs> Stop you up from winter. Anyway, where can our lovely listeners find you on interwebs? Uh, Instagram is the main thing I kind of puts communicate out uh, through would be like uh, I love their ward I L O V E three R D W A R D. Um also my website I have some really nice things for sale. Third ward themed. Um 
I love thirdward.com. But nah, man, um, I thank you for taking your time out to talk with us. Um, it's it's been like a year in the fucking works because right schedules are crazy. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I I appreciate that. Um, I appreciate all the the depression hacks. <laughs> Mark, thank you so much for having us. You're welcome. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. The other Mark. <laughs> oh, no. yeah, you. All right. <laughs> Thanks for having us, man. Right on. S- sincerely, thank you. Thank you for what you've given to the city of Houston, to Third Ward. Even if these punk ass motherfuckers don't want to admit that you gave this shit to them, you did. Your contributions to the culture do not go unnoticed. Right on, man. You are Third Ward. Thank you. And I will say, when we did talk about Third Ward, we forgot to mention that it's the home of two of the greatest sisters in the history of sisterdom. Felicia Rashad and Debbie Allen. Yay. Anyway, um, Mark, yes, thank you. And on behalf of Raquel Simone and Mark Francis, not Mark Fury, but I'm sure he thanks you guys for listening too. But thank you for listening and peace. (laughs) Right on.